So fast forward to the 80s, and I'm in, uh, we were working at the uh, Caesars, at Caesars, big, nice, pretty place. And Roy and I are backstage, and the, the Mater D said, there's a guy out here running, wants to talk to you. He said he, used to, he tried to sell you a piece of land one time. <laughs> I remember that guy. I said, yeah, Kevin, come on back. So he comes back. <clears throat> Good to see you, man. You, you know, we've gotten a little older, haven't we? I said, yeah, we have. Haven't we? And he said, you remember that land I was going to show you? You know, I tried to show you to buy for $300 an acre. And I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, you know where that is now? And I said, no. He said, well, you're standing on it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? Wow. And he said, let me tell you what happened. He said, all those people that bought it for 300 an acre, I turned around and helped them get it sold for 70000 an acre. And he said, a firm bought that and then sold it to Caesars for a million dollars an acre. But if you'd have held on to your tent, you'd have went right along and get back right in. <laughs> I said, good grief. Ooh. So here, what, what have I done? I bought, I've turned down Bob Wills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my other turned down story was I walked in a Ben's, Ben Franklin's up at Coffeeville to buy some Sharpies to sign autographs with. Yeah, it was like an old, uh, it was like a Walmart sort <clears throat> of, yeah. but smaller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the lady that ran it, it wasn't, they're not big places. They're like a Dollar General kind of thing, you know. So this lady that ran it, she said, well, I don't have any money, but that kid over there does. <laughs> And I'm the only one in the store, and this old boy walks over, and he said, uh, I own this store. I own this store and one in Bentonville, Arkansas. He said, my name is Sam Walton. I said, it didn't mean anything to me. I'm thinking, oh, my Lord. so what? Here we go. And he said, I'm needing some partners. He said, if you could spare $1,000, this is in 1960, mm-hmm. which would be like 10000 probably. And I had 2000 on me. I remember that because I lost 1000 of it shooting pools the next night. <laughs> <laughs> he said, if you if you can become a, my partner for $10,000, he said, I want to get six guys. He said, that'll give me 60000 and that will pay me down 10% on a $600,000 piece of property. Is that right? Sixty? No, 6000 A 60000 piece of property, which back then he built a couple of stores with that. So they, they, that's all they were. And he said, then I'm going to grow it into bigger and bigger. And I thought, this man is crazy. <laughs> I said, no, thank you. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> turned down Sam Walton, Bob Wills, and the realtor. <laughs> right. And, but I did learn from that. There's always opportunity in your life. A lot of times you just don't see it and it gets by. But it seems like when I would try something, it wouldn't work. You know? Right, <laughs> you know? right. But there are a lot of deals that do. You know? Oh, yeah. And I, I noticed one thing about rich people. Uh, they're kind of squirrely. They'll take some real risky chances, you know. I don't mean they're insane. They're mm-hmm. just, they just take risky yeah, chances. Right. But some of those things hit, you know, right. and you, they turn around, they're just filthy rich. Yeah. If just one of those things hits, you know, well, the right deal. Later on, I went to, years later, I went to a party, and it was a, a, an outdoor where they had a steer on a spit, a half a steer, mm-hmm. a cowboy thing, and there's a bunch of cowboys there. And, and a bunch of rich people. And I got invited because I had a big mouth and played guitar, you know. <laughs> so I'm there, and I sit down next to this guy. And so we're just shooting the bull. And I said, so what do you do for a living? He said, Sutherland Lumber. I said, which store? He said, all of them. I said, golly, that's pretty heavy. I knew I was in good company. Right. You know? And he said, 
you see that guy turning the spit over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, he doesn't work. He said, he's a multimillionaire. And so he came over on his, when he got done turning, somebody else turned to steer a while. And I said, how do you, how do you get rich and don't work? He said, I gave Sam Walton $3,000 <laughs> in 1969. Nine years later, he said, I've never worked a day since. I said, go away. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Someday I'm going to write a book because people, they'll think it's all lies, but it isn't lies. This is what really happened to me. Oh, he can write several books right here. Oh, volume, man, so. volume after volume. <laughs> boy. That, yeah, they really know how to hurt a guy, don't they? Tell oh, you that. boy. Yeah, you know. Did you guys travel all around the world touring? Yeah, we went to Europe. I don't, I couldn't tell you how many times. Maybe fifteen or twenty. We. What's different about touring there and oh, the people and stuff compared to here? People are mostly the same. Are they? Yeah, and uh, some of the nicest people I met was in Russia when it was the USSR, Soviet Union, and they were the people were nice. I don't mean their leaders are nice, mm-hmm. but if you notice. Most of our leaders aren't so nice. <laughs> it was a big deal. Did y'all go with Roy Clark to mm-hmm. Russia? That was yeah. a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah. uh, I've heard something about it here. I think uh, I was reading uh, Jim Halsey's book here a while back, yeah. and it was a, it was seemed like a pretty big deal to go to Russia at it that was, time. Right. And it was so. What time frame are we talking I went in about? Eighty-eight with him. He went there once before, I think, that, but I went with him in eighty-eight, and uh, they were just fixing to break up the Soviet Union. The people were real nice people, and their kids were well mannered and little ladies and gentlemen. and And people would ask me things. Said, "Why do you want to kill us?" I said, "I don't want to kill you." Mm-hmm. And they said, "Well, they tell us on TV that every day uh, Americans get up and thinking, how can I kill Russians?'" I said, "I get up and go to work and get my kids to school, and we come home and we eat together and watch a little TV and go to bed. That's what we do." And they went like. I'm so relieved to hear that. Mm-hmm. I said, it's the way it is, you know. Uh, I saw things I couldn't believe in Russia. Like, we would play there, and we, we couldn't tr- take amplifiers in there because, you know, you can't fly all that stuff. So but we would have a sound company do sound, and uh, mediocre, but a sound company. And then they would people would actually that had built their own little amps would donate them for us to use. And this one kid had donated his little bass amp to me, and it was terrible, but it's okay. You know, I just got through it. <clears throat> when I was done, he came up to get his amp, and I said, uh, here, hold on a minute. And I pulled out a $20 bill, and I said, that's for using the amp, because $20 to them was like a tremendous amount. They really wanted American currency, and it'd be like thousands of ruples, you know. And he said, I, I don't want your $20. He said, I'll tell you what I would like to have is your bass strings. He said, we can't get them here. And I said, well, now, these are new. I just put them on for this show to come over here. I said, but you're sure welcome to them. I, don't, I can take them off if you want. He said, would you? And I, so I just took the strings off, you know. I handed it to him, and he held them like this. He said, you don't know what this means, man. When we did that show in uh, St. Petersburg, a couple of 17-year-old boys were out in the crowd watching us play, and Roy asked me to do Johnny Be Good or something Chuck Berry thing. So I sang it, and they jumped up on the stage, and one of them had found a Confederate flag 
And he had it wrapped around him, and he's dancing around. <laughs> we didn't care. We, that's yeah. part of the show. You know, <laughs> go to it. Well, the cops come out there and grabbed them both, took them backstage. So I was concerned. So I, when I got into the show, they had both those boys in handcuffs back there in the back, sitting down, waiting on some paddy wagon. And the police were there. <clears throat> and I said, what are these, what are these boys handcuffed for? And they, was, they spoke English, and they said, they embarrassed us. I said, didn't embarrass us. We had a ball. We, I, he, they were part of the show. We loved that. And I said, my gosh, that's nothing. Don't. They said, they're going a year in prison for that. And this kid looked at me, and he said, sir, that's okay. It was worth a year in prison to get to dance. I said, and our people gripe about their little problems? Oh, they have, everybody ought to travel. Pick a country. Just go to it and come back home and kiss the Mother Earth right here. There isn't another country like the oh, good old USA. No, we don't realize what. Not even the not even the good ones, you know. <clears throat> no, and sure, we don't like a lot of things that happens, but uh, boy, I tell you what, this is still the greatest country in the world. You know, of course, we our ancestors all came out here in wagons. That's how we got here. You know, most of us in wagons. They mm-hmm. came out here, came west for a better life. You know. I can't imagine them doing it. I don't know why women wouldn't want to come out here in a wagon and stop, and there's nothing but prairie. And the husband said, well, this is it. <laughs> and they're going, is there a hospital or doctor anywhere? Mm-hmm. No, no, none of that. And uh, we just have to fight the elements, and there's no trees, so we'll build our house out of dirt and grass. Mm-hmm. What? Our women today would say, Get back on that wagon and turn this thing around. <laughs> well, I'm always thinking every time we travel west or travel anywhere, I, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, how the heck did people travel in wagons through part of this country? I mean, it's just, uh, it's got to be amazing. They, they had to have so many struggles every single day, you know, in, in those wagons, and my, especially the earliest people that right. were bringing oh, wagons yeah. across here. My great great grandfather was alive during the gold rush in California. And he didn't have much money. He had a farm, had a wife and daughter, three daughters. And he said, I'm going to go out there and try to find gold. And he took a wagon and two mules, took him six months to get there. I think he came to Ohio. Six months. He got out there and stayed there for several months and couldn't find any gold. And he came back six months. He rested up a year, and he rode a donkey, a mule, out there. Took him three months, because by then he could figure he'd you know, get yep. around. Didn't find anything. He rode the mule back, rested up another year, and rode out there again and found enough money, enough gold, to buy his three daughters' farms. Wow. I thought, is that determination? I mean, the Indians could have got him. The, the weather could have got him. A rattlesnake. Bear. He's out there by himself. I said, gee, man, we, we don't know the fortitude of these people no. and what they went through. I had an ancestor who was in a wagon train in Tennessee, and the wagon master came up, and he said, you don't have any brakes on that wagon. You can't go. And he said, I can stop this wagon. Pull it out of the line and trot them horses around when I holler at you, whoa, you stop the wagon. So they trotted out there, and he hollered, whoa, and this guy grabbed that front wagon wheel and just held it and stopped him. He said, Okay, you can go. How tough is to grab a wagon wheel? Yeah. You'll be able to yeah. yank me right off. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have been airborne. Broke your hand off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But they just live tougher. You know, oh, they, yeah. just, 
I, I remember growing up that dad once in a while whipped me the belt because, you know, it, back then it was tough old times, mm-hmm. you know. And I'd complain about how tough that was. And he said, well, my dad whipped us with a buggy whip. And his dad whipped him with bull whips. So, no thanks to the 1800s. I mean, these right. people were really, really tough people. And they, they just, I noticed none of them smiled in any of the pictures. I can see them. Right. <laughs> right. You know, first of all, they're all galded. Because they don't bathe this real often as we do. <laughs> and they've had a pretty tough time. You know, right. they just didn't smile. They probably didn't have no teeth either. Right. <laughs> I know my dad pulled my front teeth with a pair of pliers Ooh. because my new teeth were growing in. He said, we got to get them out of there. And I said, well, Dad, they're tight. <laughs> well, they won't be. And he said, oh, oh God. <laughs> Pulled him, boy. He said, let's get your breath on that first one. We'll go for this other one. <laughs> oh, man. He's a rugged kind of boy. He would tell me two things he'd tell me. He said, I don't want to ever hear that somebody challenged you to a fight and you walked away. I don't want to ever hear that. He said, I'll give you a whip and you will never believe. And he said, I don't want to ever hear you're afraid to get on. I will whip you again. <laughs> and golly, when I was 15, we'd get on them big old six-year-old unbroke wraps. You know, <laughs> they buck high enough you could see the top of a car easy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> oh, gee, man, I'll tell you what, I'd lay in bed at night, and I was about 15, and I, I got to ride that old horse tomorrow. I ain't looking forward to this at all. And then get out there, and that thing starts bucking, and Dad's yelling at you. Whip him in the belly. I ain't going to let go of whip. You whip him in the belly. I'm trying to stay on this sucker. Whip him. He said, they'll quit bucking if you whip him in the belly. I said, I don't know that, and I don't want to learn that. Reach out like this while he's going up in the air. You couldn't turn loose, could you? But I've I seen Dad ride him, and he would ride, and he'd get so mad his nose would start bleeding. He was, his blood pressure, he's so mad. And he said, if I can't break this uh, SOB, he said, I'll shoot him. I'll shoot him. There's <laughs> a nightmare out there. <clears throat> well, no wonder you wanted to go to California. Oh, and I hey. told you I told you about the song that was wrote. Did I tell you about the song? Well, this guy, I mentioned Wayne Carson, and he and I wrote some songs together. So I'd go over to his house in Springfield, Missouri, and write two or three days, and then he'd come over to my house and write. And so... I was living in the country, and I was at the time breaking a little two-year-old coat for a neighbor. And so we'd been writing songs for an hour or two, and I said, I need to take a break. I said, I go out, I got to go out there and work with that coat a little while. I said, you want to go down with me? And he said, yeah, you going down the crail? I said, yeah. So we go down the crail, and I saddle up his coat, and he's up on the fence. His songwriter deluxe. <laughs> and I get on this coat, and he starts crow hopping with me. But he ain't bucking that high. You know, he's... <laughs> uh, 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 you know? <laughs> so after he hits five or six jumps, well, I yanked his head up and slapped him, you know, and I said, cut that out, you know. Well, then he's okay. I looked toward Wayne. He's on the fence. He's going... <laughs> so he said, you're a real cowboy. I said, no, no, I'm a dude. I, I said, everybody can do what I did. I said, I know real cowboys. I'm not one of them. He said, no. I saw you ride a bucking horse, and I know you. You're the first guy I've ever got that close to that rode a bucking horse. I thought, good grief. <laughs> He's never seen anything. So we go to the house, and after a while, well, he leaves and goes back to 
Springfield, and he calls me in about three days, and he said, Rodney, I wrote a song about you. And I said, what about? And he said, well, you sing, play music. And he said, I watched you ride that bucking horse. And he said, I wrote this song called A Horse Called Music. And I said, what? He said, let me sing it to you. So he sings this song, and it wasn't a bad song. He really did a nice job. Willie Nelson cut it. Merle Haggard cut it with Willie, I think. Yeah. And it's the number one song. And I, yeah, I was so embra- embarrassed to tell him my cowboy friends, well, I, I had a cowboy song written about me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I never told anybody. I'm just telling you all yeah. now. But, but, oh, it was just embarrassing that all of the good cowboys boys I know that ain't had a song wrote about him. And then right, I get one right, right. <laughs> cut by Willie Nelson. <laughs> Horse called music. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> that's something else. I, and listen to this. I I just noticed this earlier today. He wrote that song, uh, Something's Wrong in California. And then the next thing I saw, because uh, Gotta Get to Oklahoma, there's another song he wrote. I so. wrote that for uh, the Hager twins. Yeah, I remember the Hager. Yeah. Hee Haw. I Gotta Get to Oklahoma because California's getting to me. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. They, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, and they died pretty much close together, like a few months apart. Really? Yeah, and they weren't that old. I don't know what one yeah. one 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 died, the other just didn't last long. You know. Well, Were you on Hee Haw for that <clears> whole run? Thirteen years. Wow. Yeah, thirteen years. Where'd they film it at? We filmed it at uh, the first time downtown at, at Channel Five, but then we went out to Opryland and we did the rest of them out there the next year. And, you know, nobody thought that would take off. I mean, you know, the critics hated it, and they just thought that's too stupid. Too, you know. We had thirty-six million viewers. I know. I'm real surprised. Everything comes back. I'm, I can't believe Yeehaw hasn't made some sort of resurgence yeah. yet. So, we got the band. Those uh, people that count the number counters would figure, like these uh, music companies. It says it's 36 million viewers are watching. A tenth of that is 3.6 million, and. Uh, if a ten percent of those are musicians or bass players or guitar players, you know there's still a ton. There's three hundred thousand, you know, the, the possible customers, and uh, so every time we go in there, they'd say, "Here's your new stack of instruments. Hmm. All you gotta do is play them on one of the shows once, and they're yours." So we go in there and line up all that stuff, and we get out there and ding 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 ding, ding 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 and we do we we go in and do maybe thirteen songs in one itch and we just change shirts and you know keep going man we'd had stacks of, i've still got instruments at home that i've still got from all that i ended up had 35 bases before we're done <laughs> 35 bases wow everybody who's anybody went through that show oh yeah and, and so many characters worked on the show regulars you know that oh yeah and i tell you we'd go somewhere and i know we were in vegas once and we were backstage for sammy davis jr and he said well, I'd like to be on Hee Haw. Really <laughs> turned and said, Ronnie, call, call and take care of that. Well, then I'd call Sam Lavella, who's the producer. And I said, uh, Roy Clark wants uh, Sammy Davis Jr. on the show. Okay. That's all I had to do. And I did that all the time. Well, one of the last ones I did was Pearl Bailey, the old yeah. blues singer. Uh-huh. And she said, oh, honey, I just love to do Hee Haw. And I said, well, you got it. Ronnie, call Sam. I call Sam. He said, the Pearl Bailey wants to do. He-. I said, I'm sitting there right here with her. Yeah. And she died. This was like in the middle of summer. By the fall shooting, she died. Cause we, we filmed in June mm-hmm. and October. Did the whole year in those two months. So we didn't get tired of people. Right. We would, uh, 
we'd set up the barber shop, and we'd do barber shops all day. Boom. Yeah. Archie Campbell. Yeah, and they'd all be there for that. Yeah. And uh, then we'd do another scene like that. And then we all those pieces of film went to L.A. where they spliced them all together into a show. And, uh, junior but, sample, BR549. The <clears throat> old junior. He had to be just like that. He Nobody could act that. No, he's really yeah, that was him, really stupid. He, <laughs> he, he got, got it in his mind that he was a big shot, and he, he flew out to L.A. to the production people, and he said, I came out here to explain to you people about country comedy. And they said, go get your ass in a car and get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry you cut that out. No, that's all right. That's all right. Oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah, they ran him off. They said, no, you're not telling us how to do this. <laughs> Oh, oh, he was something. Yeah, he was. But I watched that show every I'll tell you another thing. A lot of people thought that uh, those women would be wild, and they weren't at all. Those right. women were mostly married or had boyfriends, and uh, they would just come to work and do their job, and everybody was ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that shows or not. Yeah. There was no hanky-panky. There's no grabbing and none of yeah, that. Right. We didn't right. do that. No. Yeah. That was just a good, clean yeah. show. And the only one on Hee Haw that ever kissed me, kissed me square in the mouth, was Minnie Pearl. <laughs> and and I, she, I don't know what she was doing. We were in Dallas doing a show. It was on in 2020. They were filming for 2020. And I'm playing the bass, and she just walks by and just grabs me by the ears, just boo. And my wife's watching. She said, you and Minnie seem to be pretty close. I said, <laughs> I, said I had no idea. It's a good thing as her, you would have been in trouble if you'd been one of them younger ones. Oh, oh yeah, I'd been in, I'd, yeah, she, she's not going to worry about many. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I'd been in real trouble. But they were, I played tennis with uh, a lot of those girls, they played tennis. You know, we, we, you know, you get tired, you just go do something different, you know. Quinella Hutton, was that her name? Or, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew her quite well. I did a, in fact, I did a Broadway play with her. What was the dark head, she was Sunshine or something on the show? Well, at least Todd was on. Yeah. Yeah. She she was kind of eccentric. Yeah. Uh, spacey, kind of, when you yeah. talk to her. You know, she's all right. She just was in another place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then that one girl that ended up marrying uh, Kenny Rogers, what was her name? Yeah. And I, she's always her. in the swing, and I can't remember yeah. her name. What was her name? I don't know it. I think I made a movie with Benny Johnson. I wasn't there the days he was shooting, but it was... I, if I remember right, I did a half a dozen movies, but one of them was Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And they loaded that thing up with uh, a lot of character actors, a lot of them, like Chill Wills and, and Jack Elam. And oh, wow. Different ones like that. And I think mm-hmm. he was in that, as I recall. I love Chill Wills. He's one of my favorites. He was cool, wasn't he? Oh, he was a cool guy. Yeah, he was. We were down in, we shot it down in Durango, Mexico. And Bob Dylan was in it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, golly, even that far away, now we're 70 miles out of Durango, out of this set. Yeah. And people would bug him to death. They'd drive in there, there's Bob Dylan, there's Bob Dylan. I felt sorry for him. Mm-hmm. And he would put his head down. They tried to take his picture, he'd put his head down like that. Yeah. With his hat. <laughs> so during lunch hour, you could sit at the, at the tables or you could go out and sit under a tree or something. So I'd always go to the big old flat rock out there, and I'd go out there and eat there. The breeze and everything, it was just nice right there. Well, Bob Dylan walked up one day with his plate. <clears throat> he said, you mind if I sat here? And I said, no, go ahead. So we're eating. And I thought, 
can I say to him? What can I say to him? That would be, you know, and Chris Christopherson is in the movie too. Yeah, two great songwriters. But so I just started talking to him one day. I said, "Bob, you got kids?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "I do too. I miss them." I said, "This is okay, but I'd like to spend a little more time with my family." He said, "Boy, I would too." We just became good friends. And no, he couldn't, wouldn't let his picture be taken, taken by anybody. But the day we finished up, they said, we're done shooting. I said, Bob, here it comes. And I said, I, I told my wife that I know you. I called her. I don't know if she believes me or not. I said, can I have my picture taken with you? <laughs> he said, sure. So I have a picture of Bob Dylan. Oh, wow. And then I got Chris Christopherson there, and I got my picture taken with him. And I said, so I come home, and I'm showing them to my mother. She said, wow, those are big songwriters, aren't they? And I said, yeah. She said, did you tell them you wrote songs? I said, no, <laughs> no, I didn't. That's all I knew. Well, I write songs myself. Right. Yeah, what a dummy. I said, I can't even get on that level, you know. No. She said, well, you should have told them. And I said, well, that's just mother's love. Said, no, that don't work in the real world. Right. <clears throat> what was, uh, Jay, was James Coburn in that too? Yeah, he was. What, what kind of fella is he? I'm going to tell you the truth. He looked tough to me. Scared to death of a horse. Ooh. I mean, petrified. <laughs> we're, we're shooting one scene, and I was basically a writer. That's all I did. Can you imagine? A dude, but I'm a writer. <laughs> and Wrote a song about him, famous one. So <clears throat> they would, uh, one day they said they're going to have James Coburn and the posse riding into town at a lope, ride up to the saloon, saddle, get off your horse, and go in the saloon. That's all you had to do. So... We shot that thing all day long, that one scene. Ride into town, ride saloon. Take her again, take her again. Okay, let's break for lunch. Now let's take her again. Every time, he'd say, he's trying to run off with me. He's trying. And I said, no, he's all right. I had a stunt man over on the other side, and I'm on this side. <clears throat> I said, we'll stop him. So we'll grab him and stop him. And I said, if, if, he, if you don't want to do that, grab a hold of one of us, and we'll pull you off. Oh, God, I can't do that. <laughs> <clears throat> so he'd do that. Then when we got up to the saloon, he'd have to get over his horse, and he's real brave again, you know, just as like a hero. They have a drink of water. Yes, sir. This old dusty land's getting me. We, <laughs> yeah. have, we have grass where I live. Well, you're going back to thinking about being down there in Durango, Mexico. Yep. <clears throat> out there on the set with old James. <clears throat> you know, you get out of Durango back then. That was in like 72. And there was little towns around, and sometimes we get in a Jeep and ride around and look. Time off. And they lived like the old West. They had horses, no no cars, horses and buggies, no electricity. It was like the old West. And I thought, I saw guys with guns on riding around. I thought, this is just like a hundred years ago. I don't know what it's like now. It's probably caught up now. But Well, uh, <coughs> it's maybe like the, the roaring 20s there right now. I'm not <laughs> sure. I mean, it's still about like the old West. That was a Sam Peckinpah movie, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I'll tell you how I got in that. They're hard to get into. Right. So I'm in a, playing in a bar, and this guy comes in who's a stuntman. <clears throat> and he had on a stuntman jacket, said his name on the back of it, of Los Angeles. And <clears throat> so we talked on break, and he said, uh, I'm going to go down to Mexico and do another one. He said, I was just in a... Uh, Oh, what's that guy's name that died that rode a motorcycle? And he he had his own show. He, he had a sawed-off Winchester. He Steve McQueen. Steve, Steve McQueen, McQueen, yeah. He was in a uh, junior Bonner mm-hmm. about a bull rider. Yeah. And he was, the, he was the stuntman. He rode the bulls. 
So anyway, he said, uh, go in there and do another movie. And he said, would you like to be in it with me? And I said, yeah, but I don't know anybody. He said, I can get you in the movie. So if you want to do it, it's a done deal. I said, okay. And I told him, I had to explain to my wife, I'd be gone a month, you know. <laughs> She'd have to do chores. <laughs> it, it's, it's the cowboy way. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the cowboy way. <laughs> see you in the fall if I see it at all, honey. Yeah. So she took it pretty good. And uh, so I get ready, uh, you know, after a few weeks, we're getting ready to go down there. And this guy comes in. He said, oh, that deal's off. I, I said, what do you mean it's off? I said, I've told everybody on the stage here. I've been playing this bar for six months. You tell me I ain't going? He said, no. I said, have you got Sam Peckinpah's phone number? He said, well, yeah. I said, give it to me. Hmm. He gave me his phone number. I called Sam Peckinpah home <laughs> in Hollywood. <clears throat> and I said, <clears throat> do you know this Steve Maxson? He said, Oh, yeah, that guy, I know him. You know, he just acted like, well, I don't. You know. Yeah. So I said, well, he told me I was going to be in this movie. And uh, then he tells me, and after I tell everybody on stage I'm going to do this movie, then he said, no, that, that deal fell through with. He said, you come down, I'll put you on a silver screen. I thought, Sam Peckinpah, that's how I got in the movie, you know. So I go down there, and, then, and I look around, and here's all these stars walking around. And I thought, what am I doing here? So <clears throat> I had let my beard grow. That's kind of bushy looking. And I was chewing tobacco. I did get a chew and look, look the part. That made, made me sick. <laughs> <clears throat> so I had on cowboy hat and jeans. And I walked out. I said, Sam, I'm the guy that called you about getting in the movie. And Steve had said I was going to do it and then it didn't work out. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, you'll do. Go over to wardrobe. I said, thank you, Sam. And he had a little little prissy guy there with him. He said, take him over to wardrobe. So he's going on. He said, you should never call him Sam. You should say Mr. Peckinpah. I said, as a son, I got this far. Call him Sam. I'm not about it. <laughs> so I get over there, and they give me my clothes, and I put them on. And then I had a gun belt on, and they sprinkled dust on my shoulders and the hat and everything. And the boots I, they gave me, I looked inside and said, Paul Newman. That's the only time I ever want to steal something. I thought, I'll just trade in my boots. I don't care. My boots are nicer, and I'll have Paul in them. But I just, too honest. I couldn't do that. I thought, it'd be a trade. But you should have asked Sam. I just, I just couldn't. Well, I just didn't. I thought, boy, I'd like to have Paul Newman's boots, though. And it had the name of the movie, HUD or something inside. Mm. You know, the, boy, he was playing an Indian, I think, in the, whatever that was. Anyway, yeah, that was a famous movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but anyway, I, I, he and I have the same boot size. Wow. That's crazy how they reuse all those props back <clears throat> yeah. then. And today, that would be definitely right when that movie's <clears throat> over. Uh, a treasure and right off the bat. I'll tell you what, Sam was so, his crew, you didn't pull that pistol out of that holster or you'd get fired. If you weren't supposed to be doing that, you didn't. They checked those guns over and over and over. And when I saw this guy mm. shoot at somebody, a camera lady, mm -hmm. that would never happen in a Sam Peckinpah movie. And all of his movies were violent. Mm -hmm. They were just, they talked about how many barrels of phony blood they had to use to shoot a movie. But they were very careful about the firearms. You just, you did not mess with them. Yeah. And even you would check the gun, they would check the gun almost on a daily, they'd say, 
when you get the gun, you, you say they always say check and see if there's anything in it, and mm-hmm. they'd check it. Mm-hmm. Who's that critical, you know? Right, it have to be. And, and then when, when we got when, ready to shoot a scene where we're going to shoot, then they would put the the stuff in there for you, the blanks. Right. Yeah. When you think all the westerns that have been <coughs> shot over the history, all the bullets have been shot, and I guess that's the only one I know of. I do too. And how in the world did live ammo get on a movie set? Doesn't even that's, make that sense. doesn't make a bit of sense. Yeah. But and why would you point it at somebody and pull the, the cameraman pull the trigger? Well, he said I pulled the hammer back, and he said, "Okay, we got that." And he said, I just "Let it go," and it went off. Yeah. I said, "Well, I want to say you're still ignorant for not checking it yourself." Right. Right. You should have said, "Whoa, that don't look like a blank. Blanks look different than a real bullet. You mm-hmm. know that they, mm-hmm. they don't look right. right. They're not solid in the." The bullet part of him. Right. But it killed that girl right off, and it hit the director, I yeah. think. Hit him, hit too. Him. Yep. But I'm sure there's going to be some tremendous lawsuits when that's oh, all yeah. settled. It's yeah. a very unfortunate thing that happened <clears throat> Yeah, it was there. terrible. You know, Something it, you don't even think about happening. No. How the hell could that happen? And I know? feel sorry for him, too. For but, sure. That he, but he, he just should have, you know, he was in production, too, of that movie. He should have took care of things. But when you think all, not just all the movies have been made, but all this old serial westerns, oh, The Lone yeah. Ranger and Hopalong Cassidy and all that stuff, and Roy Rogers, and nothing like that's ever happened. Well, I think maybe, uh, what was it? Uh, the guy, Bruce Lee's son. Yeah. He yeah. might have died that way. He's yeah. the only other guy. That, that wasn't I've a western, heard. though. Wasn't a western, but it was a movie. So yeah. You know, I, was, uh, I got signed to Capitol Records, and I went down to Nashville for fanfare. And uh, I'd got a new guitar given to me by Ovation. That's one that had to round back on it and uh so i sang on my little part of the show my new record when i came off roy rogers was standing he said can i borrow your guitar i thought well heck yes you can (laughs) (laughs) so he went out there and he did his song with my guitar so he came back and said boy i really like that guitar i said you want one he said can you get me one i said they gave me mine i said and i'm certainly not a big star and so Back then, we didn't have cell phones, but there was a payphone back there. So I said, just man, I got their card in my billfold. So I called them. And uh, I said, I'm standing here with Roy Rogers, and he'd like to have a guitar. And uh, I said, I, I got mine because I was friends with Glenn Campbell. He got one, and, and I got mine too. And they said, yeah, we know that. And I said, well, yeah. I said, I said, well, you want to talk to Roy? He's right here. So they, Roy took the phone. And he gave me his address and everything, and they sent him a new guitar. And he said, uh, man, how do I thank you for this? I said, you don't thank me. He said, it's all right. He said, just a minute. He took a piece of paper, and he wrote his phone number on He said, if you're ever out in California, give me a call. So we'll hang out or something. I said, okay. So I stuck it in my billfold. I'm out in California the next year. <laughs> I thought, hey, I'll call old Roy. So I called this number, and it was a booking agent in Los Angeles. <laughs> I said, showbiz. <laughs> but he probably had to do that because he couldn't give his home number out. You know, he couldn't do that. Yeah. Huh. And on, on that case, I'll tell you what. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember when Johnny Cash did a song called One Piece at a Time mm-hmm. about a guy that stole oh, yeah. Cadillac sure. parts. Well, there was a wealthy man here in Can- in Oklahoma that loved that record. And he had, he's worth like, he owned coal mines and stuff, like half a billion dollars. So he had a museum of old cars that he'd hired four men to fix up old cars and old 
beautiful Stutz Bearcats and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so he, t- he commissioned those guys to build a Cadillac like that song. They'd have to listen to it, and then it'd have like a big fin on one mm-hmm. side and a shorter fin. It had two headlights on one side and one headlight on the other. It had, a, had one door on one side, two doors on the other. They fitted all that. It looked beautiful. Then across the top, it's like he raised the top, and, and in neon light, it put one piece at a time blinking off and on. And he had speakers under the fenders, and it was singing, I had it one piece at a time, <laughs> yeah. and blasting out. Oh, it's a beautiful car. And he's, so I'm aware looking at it, and he and I had been friends a while, and he said, I would like to give this car to Johnny Cash, but I can't get word to him. He said, do you know Johnny Cash? I said, I've never met him in my life, but I know where his office is. I said, you and I could drive this car down Nashville and drive it over to his office. He's usually there every day when he's not on the road. And I said, we just take our luck. He said, oh, we won't drive the car down there. He said, we'll, we'll put it in one of those closed-in vans, and I'll have my men take it down. You and I will fly down to my jet. I said, oh, I keep forgetting this. Yeah. <laughs> I said, that sounds like a winner. <clears throat> so we fly down there, and, and they always they went a day ahead and had the car down there ready for us at the airport. So I told him where the office was. Now, I rode in the back. I said, I'm going to sit in the back. <laughs> so he's up front, and I'm in the back. And uh, I told him where to turn. Finally, we pulled in. He had a little circle drive in his office where the house of cash was. Well, I... He jumped out of the car, and I started to get out. There was no door on that side. I only had one door over here. It's two door, one door. You know, so, so I'm sliding across the seat, and Johnny Cash drives around from the back in a black Cadillac, and he slams on his brakes. And I'm getting out of the car, and he said, and it's going, I had it one piece at a time, bleep, bleep, bleep. He said, seemed like I heard something about this. What's the deal? I said, the man that had this built is very wealthy. He wants to give you the car give you the car and uh, he said really I said he said well my agent in New York said something about this and he said I just put it away you know so about that time the rich man comes out of the uh, office door and he sees me standing there talking to Johnny Cage Johnny's dressed in black he's got them boots that lace up the a long coat and big tall dark hair <laughs> and this guy went into Jackie Gleason. He went to go, I'm not, I'm not. He couldn't talk. He couldn't talk. So Johnny just took over. He said, this guy's name is Bill. He said, now, Bill, Rodney here tells me you want to give me this car. And uh, he said, that's right. He said, well, let's go take her for a spin. So Johnny got in. He's driving. And I got back in the back. Bill's up front. Hmm. And we're driving around Nashville, and people can look at these. Johnny said, this is what I need, more recognition, you know. <laughs> but after a while, we went back to the office, and uh, he looked over Bill, and he said, you want to give me this car? G-I-B-E, give me the car. He said, that's right. No strings attached. He said, one string. And Johnny went, What? <laughs> He said, if you ever get tired of it, I want to buy it back from you. Johnny said, you got a deal. They shook hands. They became good friends. And up until Bill died, he died of cancer. He was in his 50s. They were real good buddies. When Bill died, he had divorced his first wife and married a younger woman. And she, after Bill died, she started dating Ronnie Dunn. 
And Ronnie was a good singer around Tulsa, and she wanted uh, they needed to get in Nashville, so she called Johnny Cash. And he said, yeah, come on down. You can stay in my guest house. Or something. He had a place there, so that's where they stayed. And then he got hooked up with uh, another Okie there that managed Arista Records. And uh, yeah, they had this Kicks Brooks they was trying to find a partner to. So Ronnie fit the bill. Everybody worked. And the first job, he didn't have any clothes to wear on the stage. And Johnny gave him one of his long black coats. Do you see him in his early? He's wearing one of his long black coats. And I said, you know, what goes around comes around. You know, uh, he gave Johnny a car, and Johnny turned around and helped Ronnie get started. Through Bill's widow. Well, through, through his wife. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, you, just, you never know. When yeah. You, I, I've learned one thing in life, and that is if you say something bad about him, anybody, it'll get back to him. Yeah. But if you say something good about him, it, it also gets back to him. Mm-hmm. And I've said, haven't you said something nice about somebody? And they come around a month later and say, thank you for what you said, you know. Uh, that happened to me with Ronnie Dunn. Uh, Ronnie put out a record called Boot Scoot and Boogie. And there was some guy in Oklahoma said he wrote it. And he ran a little club in Oklahoma, and Ronnie would go in there and sing it, and he taught him the song. And he said, uh, so he sued Ronnie Dunn. He also, in the thing, he said, go talk to Rodney Lay. He worked at my club all the time, and, and he heard me doing that song. I never worked his club in my life. <laughs> so I get a call from an attorney in Tulsa, and I said, uh, he said, uh, I need to talk to you about the suit against Ronnie Dunn. I said, what, what do you want me to do? He said, all I want you to do is testify that you heard this club owner singing this song. And I said, well, that's a lie. I've never been in his club. That's a lie. I said, this cat is lying to you, and you're going to end up really being embarrassed. I said, if this guy's such a great songwriter, his first song out, he wrote Boot Scoot and Boogie. I said, what else has he wrote? Just that one song. I said, that's impossible. <laughs> I said, I've wrote 300 songs. And outside of three or four, they've all been nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I said, that's impossible. You don't, you don't just step out and write a hit song. So Ronnie Dunn's roadie, was talking to my son who lived in Nashville, and he said, oh, by the way, Ronnie wanted me to tell you to tell your daddy that he thanks your dad for speaking up for him on that lawsuit. I thought, see how it gets around. You know, it just gets around on it. Mm-hmm. It ended up, Ronnie's lawyer said, go ahead and pay the guy 25000 to get him off your back because it isn't worth it. He said, but he didn't write it. He said, I know that. Pay him and shut him up. That's what they did. But Ronnie, by then, was making millions. But still, what's right yeah. is right to me. Right. I wouldn't have given him a nickel, but I'm not Ronnie Dunn. No. <laughs> <clears throat> no. What about the Wild West? We were rock and roll, Ronnie and the Blazers, and until and when you're in rock and roll, you got a few years. I don't care where you, you can be. The Eagles, you can be the Doobie Brothers, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. You got a few years. Rolling Stones have stayed longer than anybody I ever saw. I never saw such an old bunch of guys still doing it. I know. But most of them, they, they have their time. Well, I, we had our time. And uh, so we started learning some country songs. And we said, let's change the name to something. We're still kind of wild. We're still playing a little rock and a little country. So we called ourselves the Wild West. 
for Western music and mm-hmm. wild rock and roll. And then we did that on through Hee Haw. We kept that name on Hee Haw, you know. So, uh, and then Dottie West came out and named her band the Wild West. I said, come on, Dottie. <laughs> you know, we're on television every week, and we have been. <laughs> but I, nah, I don't care, you know. Right. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. When did you play Pahuska? Oh, my. I used to play the Whiting Hall over here. Who are you? What was who, that old boy's name? He was gray-headed. He ran the Whiting Hall. Oh, up there, there was three flights of stairs. Mm-hmm. We'd go up there sober and finish drunk <laughs> and come down those stairs throwing our amps, and they're just boom, 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 boom. <laughs> we was drunk in the sky. <laughs> and then sometimes it didn't play. We had to have them fixed. <laughs> oh, that's a hall. A lot of people, a lot of famous people. Jerry Lee played it. Oh, Bo, Bob Wills Bo, played it. Bo Diddley played it. Bo Diddley played it. Chubby Checkers, I heard. Wow. <clears throat> Might have been. Yeah. What was that old boy's name? I can't remember. I know who you're talking about. I, I know of him. And uh, I used to go over to uh, Fairfax and play Jumps Roller Rink. Yeah, and old WL cool. Jump. I remember him. Yeah. Because, you know. That was quite a place, too. And I was over there working with the guy that recorded uh, Candy Kisses, George Morgan. Yeah. Lori Morgan's, Morgan's dad. dad. Yep. And I'm playing bass. So George mentioned over the microphone, he said, um, Bob Wills' widow is there. Mrs. Bob Wills is here. So on break, I went over there to talk to her. I said, you don't know me at all. I said, I'm playing this band up here. And I said, when I, when I heard your name, you're, you know, I said, I had a chance to work with your husband, and I turned it down. And she looked at me and said, well, you're the first one. <laughs> I guess everybody was. I used to work with old Bob. Right, probably. Yeah, no doubt. It's <clears throat> uh, crazy. You playing any music now? Yeah, you know, I play. I play bass, and uh, I just finished touring the United States in December. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm getting a little old to go out there another year. I've been out there three or four years, doing that hee haw reunion thing, and. Uh, I play as good as I ever did. I just don't have the heart to go out there anymore and do that, you know. It's, it's too hard to go through airports carrying a bass guitar for a half a mile from one plane to the next and when you can't get one of those rides when you need it. And uh, I guess if I quit dyeing my hair, maybe I could let it go gray and get a ride. I don't... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you look too young. <clears throat> That's it. See, you get too young. You got to... That's the first time I ever noticed about getting older. Is, you know, when you're young, why the women hit on you. They do in show business. My wife knows this. They mm-hmm. hit on you. And I got to that age one day where these two young girls came up, about 18, and I'm getting ready to get on the bus, and they call me Mr. <laughs> they said, Mr., can we look up yeah. in the bus? I went, oh, it's happened. Yeah, I'm you, Mr. You, <laughs> yeah, you, you knew you'd done, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> He's even acquainted with the uh, largest movie star possibly in the world still that I read. I don't know if it's true or not. Tom Cruise. Did you so one of your songs on yeah, hit one of his I movies? Think, but I didn't. I didn't have much to do. I, I was recording for Sun Records down in Nashville. Oh wow, Sun Records. Yeah, and uh, the people that were shooting the movie, Born on the Fourth of July, they wanted a song, a rockabilly song, and they somebody said, "Well, the rockabilly label is that old Sun Records." So they called down there, and they said, we don't want a name. We don't want somebody to hear it and go, that's Jerry Lee Lewis or that's Elvis. We just want a rockabilly song. And I had just done a rockabilly album down there. 
and uh, they took one of the songs and put it in the movie. It's right at the front of the movie. There's a band marching down the street, and it dies down. It's that rockabilly song. That's me. So that was an accident, you know. <clears throat> we, we were in a movie once. We were in Nevada, and they were shooting in cold blood. Yep. Thought these guys were murdering people to clutter family up in Kansas, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, I forget who started in these two guys. But they're shooting in the street uh, out there. Robert Blake. Was Robert one Blake. Of, that's right. I can't remember. They're that shooting other. in the street, driving down the, the main drag of downtown, and it says Rodney and the Blazers up on the Golden <laughs> Nugget. I said, Hey, what do you think of that? Look <laughs> how lucky is that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's something else. Yeah, you just never know, you know. Yeah, but the, the only way, you know what? It's like everything in the world. You got to go get it. You got to go get it. If you're in rodeo, you can't just ride locally and never get there. You got to go out there and get it. You got to pound that damn road, you know. And uh, I never saw anybody that made it while they were home. I mean, hell, Garth Brooks, you name it, they all went to Nashville. You know, Reba had to go to Nashville, they had to go there. And I've told young people that that want to be in this business, and I said, well, Pull up your stakes and go to New York, L.A., or Nashville, whatever career you're in. If it's country, go to Nashville. And they said, oh, well, I don't know if I'd want to do that. I'd have to leave my friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to do that. you got to sacrifice like you can't believe. But you do that in anything you're successful at. Uh, it, the old phrase, if you want to make it in a job, come early and stay late. It's that. It's and don't watch the clock. You know, the bosses wa- are watching you. You know, mm-hmm. that's what you do. I read a book one time called Think and Grow Rich because I wasn't, I wasn't getting there, you know. And it's a good book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And when I read that book, I thought, oh, it tells you all the mistakes you're making. What he did was he was a protege of uh, Carnegie, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he decided to write this book, and Dale Carnegie what you need to do is go interview successful people. That doesn't mean rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how rich some people are that were successful, like the guy Einstein that built the atomic bomb. I don't know that he was wealthy, you know. But they were successful or whatever they pursued. And out of this, he interviewed all these people, and then he, he formed a personality from all these, the things you do and things you don't do. And they said, when you read this book, you'll be a millionaire. I read it in 76, and in 83, I was worth a million three. Took me that long, because I'm dumb. But you start doing the right things. It teaches you like when do you shut up? When you're in the business, I me. Mean, when have you oversold? Like if you're selling a guy a horse and he's already said I'll take it, shut up. Don't keep going. No one, you did a good deal. Don't do that. You can talk him right back out of it. And have you ever been in a meeting and you see some guy talking too much? And you're going. He needs to shut up right now. He needs to shut up right now. And it, it'll teach you all of that the things to do. And Learn things like uh, if a boss asks you something, never refuse him. So, well, I'll sure give her a try. Mm-hmm. You're not guaranteeing him that you'll do it because you may fail, but I will give it a try. And that's what he wants to hear, you know. And, and, and you don't, you're not really blowing smoke at him because he'll buy that quick, you know. But you just develop a different attitude. You develop an attitude that's positive. And when people have their bucket list of people they got to deal with, they'll look to and say, that old boy's pretty easy to work with. I'll get him. That's what you want to shoot for. And I learned this. Uh, uh, 
if you hang out with poor people and you're trying to be rich, you're, you're wasting your time because they can't help you. It doesn't mean they're not nice people. They just can't help you. And, and a rich man's crumb is like a poor man's wedding cake, you know. Mm-hmm. So you start, you learn how to golf. You learn how to hang around the country club. You start learning to get with money people. In the oil business, you want to start hanging out with them any way you can. Then you get get where you need to be. In ranching, anything. Get with the people that are successful, and they'll, you'll, they'll, you'll feed off of them. And they'll throw you a deal once in a while, you know. That's good advice. Kind of like a rodeo. They said, <coughs> travel, <coughs> travel with the winners. Well, sure. Right. Travel with the winners. Yep. Yeah, that's some great advice. That is. Thank you, Rodney. You bet. Hope everyone was really listening to all that. <laughs> yes. There was some good stuff in there. Yeah, sure was. For sure. So what are you doing now, Rodney, besides just getting off tour, thinking you might not want to go back well, on tour? I just got out of prison yesterday. So okay. I've got to free think things. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm retired, and uh, I'm enjoying life. And it's great to say when somebody says, Rodney, um, we're going to start this project, and we want you to be a part of it. And I'll say, no. And they say, why? I said, because I don't want to. Because <laughs> all them free things you get into, pretty soon you're working like a son of a gun, you know. We want you on the board of directors or something. No, I don't want to do that because I've been on a lot of boards. You know, as you mm-hmm. get older, mm-hmm. they'll always say, well, you be on this board with us. They don't pay. <laughs> you just, you're just, no, I'm on all kinds of boards around here. <laughs> yeah, everybody. I'm trying to get off of them. <clears throat> Well, Jimbo, you got anything else for Rodney? Well, I just want to know when the book's going to come out. I'm excited I'll for have it, to too. find somebody that can write. I don't know how to do that. I just have to sit down with him and say, turn on your recorder, and we'll talk about it. It'd be a shame if you didn't write a book and get all these old stories <clears throat> for history, I'm, you know. I bet he's got a thousand more of them. Oh, yeah. Easy. Absolutely. Did I tell you about when I was a kid? Did I tell you about the gunfighter? I tell you. Which one? You didn't tell us who he was, though. I tell you about the fast draw, and he did that. Uh-huh. Yeah, shot the call. But you never told us who you thought well, he might I don't be. Know. He, they, Long, lanky guy. And he called him. See, our name was Lay, and one of the guys in the Butch Cassidy and the, wall, uh, the Sundance Kid, their gang, was named Lay. And he'd be about the right age. Hmm. And I looked him up, and they don't know where he died exactly. They thought California or New Mexico, but they weren't sure. I'm thinking maybe he was still alive. <clears throat> this guy was a super, super shot, man. But I don't know to write a book. There's a gal in Germany who wants to write a book, but she's too far away. She said, oh, I'd love to write a book. She just reads my posts on Facebook, you know. Yeah. Huh. Well, I know we've done 40-plus podcasts, <laughs> and for sure this is the hardest we've laughed at any of them. You know? <laughs> I've had a great time today, Oh, I have, too. I've and had one real of the best blast. times. And, and just, Rodney, uh, if you ever need a roadie, Cody... And roadie rhyme. So, Cody the roadie, I'm perfect for it. Let me tell you I'll tune your triangle. Or I might even step in there and play the triangle because <coughs> I'm real good at thing it. Before I leave, okay? Okay. 16 years ago, I was working in a, I'd quit the show business. I'd come home. And I got a job. I was working in a plant that rebuilt valves for Phillips Petroleum and any refinery and on turnarounds where. We'd furnish the rebuilt valves. And we got a bunch of acid valves in. And they didn't tell me, but those things cause cancer like a champ. And I had to go in there and sandblast those acid valves. But they were in a, an in, in a sander, and you put your arms through the, through the little holes. Mm-hmm. And, but that 
glass had a crack in it, and I breathed that dust till we got all those valves done. And I started coughing, and I coughed for um, three or four months. It just wouldn't go away. So I go to the doctor, and I said, man, I've been coughing for three or four months. He said, well, let's do an X-ray. So I did an X-ray. He called me up. He said, uh, I think I see something. He said, once you go into Bartlesville, we're going to do a CAT scan. I'm not going to find anything, but okay. I just got a little cough. Boy, I'm going to paint. <clears throat> so I went in there, and they did a CAT scan. Called me down there the next day, and these two doctors are long-faced as you ever saw. I said, Randy, you got stage four lung cancer. I said, how can I get lung cancer? I don't smoke. They said, what else you been doing? I said, well, I've been working in that plant where grinding those valves, and I said, is there any of those cause cancer? I said, well, I don't know. I didn't know at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Found out they do. And I said, well, what do we got to do? And they said, well, first of all, we need to go in there and operate and get that main tumor out of your chest. It's about the size and shape of a hamburger patty. And I said, hamburger patty? God. Four months had been know. growing, and I just didn't think about it. You know, you have aches and pains. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, well, let me call my doctor. So I called my doctor, and he, he said, Ronnie, you got cancer bad, Oz. And I said, yeah, they told me I had a few months to live. And he said, yeah, I know it. He said, they're not kidding either. I said, golly, a few months to live. So they said, uh, he said, I said, what would you do if you were me? He said, I'd go to MD Anderson, Houston. He said, don't go to any hospitals like in Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, don't do that, Little Rock. He said, they'll kill you. He said, go to MD Anderson. I have more patients that live that go there. <clears throat> I said, well, make me an appointment. So he made me an appointment, and uh, he said, they'll see you in a month. I'm going to tell you what happened before that. First thing I did, whenever they told me, I came home. And I went out in the backyard and got on my knees and started praying. <laughs> I thought, I said, Lord, I'm not ready to go yet. You know, I'm I'm still full of life. I'm not ready to sign off. And then I, for some reason, I thought, in the Bible, because I've read the Bible over the years, that God would talk to Moses and Abraham and Isaiah and even talk to Paul and, and different ones. And so I just said, God, I said, I'm kind of in a dilemma here. Would you talk to me and kind of tell me I should do. And I said, I'm just going to wait here real quiet till you talk to me. So I'm on my knees for like three minutes. Just not, every time I'd start to get a thought, I'd go, nope, I just want to keep my mind blank. And after about three minutes, here came this voice. It was a thought, but it was like, almost like a voice. It was so strong. And it wasn't like I talk. It wasn't the way I talk. I talk okey, and this wasn't okey. And this thought voice, he said, my son, he said, do you think I have a problem healing your little old cancer? He said, I made the universe and everything in it. He said, healing your cancer is a snap. But he said, I won't touch you. I went, why? He said, because you're about a three-quarter believer. He said, yeah, you believe in my son Jesus, and you believe in me, and but he said, you don't really think we do miracles. He said, we've never stopped doing miracles. He said, we have miracles to do every day. He said, 
do you realize the upkeep on the universe? (laughs) Just the upkeep? (laughs) He said, we're destroying worn-out planets and building new ones. And and he said, we got to keep the earth in perfect orbit around the sun. If it got too close, it'd burn you up. Got too far away, you'd freeze to death. He said, we got to maintain that. He said, that doesn't just happen on its own. So I'm just like, so he said, if you come to me and you're 99% sure that I can do this, I won't touch you. He said, if you have any doubt, doubt's not from me. He said, I don't build universes with doubt. He said, you get doubt from Satan. I went. So I thought a little bit and I thought, okay. I said, my other option is they tell me I'm going to die in a couple of months. So I said, Father, I guess that I'm going to have to accept you. I'm going to call your hand. I said, I'm going to believe 100% that you will heal me. Now, if I see that I'm getting worse and worse and worse and not getting better, I'm going to throw my Bible in the trash. That's where I was mentally, you know. And he said, let's get it on. He, that's, he just talked just like that. Let's get it on. And he said, then he said, I want you to do, th- do some things and I will do the rest. He said, go to the best hospital you can go to and I will do the rest. So that's whenever I called my doctor and he got me lined up with MD Anderson. <clears throat> he said, now I want to see you every day at this time. I'll talk to you. He said, I'm on a lot of time to talk to you. He said, you're not ready yet for this healing. And I said, okay. So every day at 2 o'clock, I'd go out on, in the front yard or backyard and get on my knees. And I said, God, I'm here. And the time was shorter. It got to where he danced me just first day or two. It was two minutes and one minute. And it got to where just instantly. But the first day, he said, uh, I want you to repent of all your sins. You don't have to put this on the air. This is just for you guys. And he said, I want you to repent of all your sins. I said, well, I did when I was a kid. You know, went to church. He said, no, you've sinned since then. I said, well, yeah. <laughs> so I said, I don't even know if I can know all my sins. He said, I know every one. I said, okay. So, oh, no. so I said, oh, Father, I, uh, I ask you to forgive me in the name of Jesus for everything I've done wrong. He said, good. How do you feel? I said, I guess I feel better. You know, I didn't know. I don't feel any worse. I guess I feel better. He said, I'll see you tomorrow. The next day, he said, I want you to forgive everybody that's ever done you wrong. I said, oh, Lord. I said, I've been robbed so many times. <laughs> I said, man, I traded horses. I said, We're going to the law. I can write a book about it. You're in the music business. He said, uh, I said, that, I don't know where I, broken hearts, uh, broken bank books. I said, man. He said, everybody's done you wrong. He said, I know everyone. So I said, dear father, I forgive all these people that ever did anything wrong to me. And I had to really mean it, you know. Mm-hmm. You really mean it. He said, how do you feel? I said, oh, I think I feel better. So the next day I went out there, and this is when it really got squirrely. I said, I'm here. And he said, all right. He said, I want you to pray for a few people. I said, okay. Who? He said, Adolf Hitler. I thought, well, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I've really just flipped out. I don't, you know, it must have been all them old wild days. I've just cracked my brain open. I said, are you kidding me? I said, he's dead. He said, he's not dead to me. We haven't had judgment day yet. You can pray for the dead. I said, I didn't know that. So I'm down on my knees praying for Adolf Hitler who killed six million Jews. And I'm thinking, well, I'm praying as hard as I can. I just, I said, I hope that Adolf gets 
closer to you, God, and learns what you're about. And, and, and I hope he asks forgiveness and all that. He said, how you feel? I said, I feel better. And I was starting to feel better doing that. Then every day it was Attila the Hun, Joseph Stalin, <clears throat> that Manson guy that killed all the, <laughs> the worst of the worst. Every day he'd say, how do you feel? And I said, I feel better. So then one day, he said, uh, I said, what do you mean? who do you want me to pray for today? He said, I want you to pray for everybody in the world. I said, seven billion people? He said, I know every hair on every head. So, okay. So you guys were alive. I prayed for you. You didn't know it. I didn't know that I was praying for you, but I prayed for everybody in the world that they'd have a better life, a closer relationship with Jesus, and, and things would turn around for them. They'd get love in their heart. So when I got done with that, he said, how do you feel? And I said, well, I love everybody. That anger that was in me that I had all my life is gone. I was always ready to fight if somebody wanted to try. Well, well let's go do that. You know, it was no problem. There was no fear in it. It was like, Heck yeah, we'll go fight. You win some, you lose some. But all that anger was gone. I didn't want to hurt anybody. And I said, I love everybody. He said, Exactly. That's what I wanted you to say. You love everybody. He said, I love everybody. Jesus loves everybody. We don't love their sin, but we still love them. He said, you understand, everybody's my children. I love all my children. I don't like what they do sometimes, but neither do you. You know, I said, that's right. <clears throat> so I went to Houston. I took my CAT scan down there. Oh, and he also told me, he said, I want you to start eating right. Get on the internet and see what you're supposed to eat and what you're not supposed to eat when you got cancer. And he said, read about exercising and all that and do what you're supposed to do. He said, take care of yourself. Make yourself a better patient. <clears throat> and I got him with all that, and the phone rang. And it's a friend of mine who's in multi-level stuff, pyramid stuff. And he wanted me to get in this vitamin drops or something. I said, well, Mark, I, I, I'm not, I ain't got time for that. He said, well, it won't take any time. I said, no, no, I said, I don't want to hear it. I said, man, I got cancer. He said, you do? I said, yeah. He said, well, that's what this stuff's for. <laughs> I thought, what is the, the irony of that that this guy would call me? And he said, it, it's supposed to kill the cancer cells in your body. And I said, okay, I want to buy enough for a month. <laughs> I was going down there for in a month to see mm -hmm. the doctor. And he said, why don't you just sign up as a distributor? I said, there you go. He said, well, I'm saying you just get it wholesale and you can always drop out. I said, okay, sign me up. And he said, I'm going to bring it up to you. He said, I don't, I don't want to wait on them shipping it to you. I'm going to bring it up to you so you'll have enough for a month to take it. So I'm putting these drops on my tongue. I'm exercising. I've read where cancer loves it when you lay still. When you've got cancer, if you sit around in a chair, you're killing yourself. Get up, move. Oxidize your body. Walk till you sweat. But move. Cancer can't live in that. And if you're on a, uh, an alkaline diet, everything that tastes good is acidic. Everything that tastes yucky is alkaline. That means eat cucumbers and watermelons and uh, leafy vegetables all the time. It just Everything's kind of yucky. That's what you want to eat when you've got cancer. So I did all that. I went to Houston, showed them my CAT scan from Bartlesville. They took one look at it and they said, Man, you got cancer bad. We don't think we can help you. And they said, that main tumor 
has grown into the sack that holds your heart. It's come out of the lungs, and he said, it's, so you're in real bad shape. And uh, I said, look, I got good insurance. Let me be your guinea pig. Let me try. So they said, we'll do another CAT scan. If you've gotten worse, we just can't help you. So they did another CAT scan. The next day I went in there. I had three doctors, one that was in charge of radiology and one that was chemotherapy and one that was a surgeon. And they're all three sitting there. They said, what have you been doing? I said, I've been over at the motel. And they said, no, no, what have you been doing since you had that CAT scan a month ago in Oklahoma? So I told them everything. I told them about God, talking to God. I told them everything. I told them about what I was doing. And uh, I said, why are you asking me all this? Well, we'll show you. So they said, here's your CAT scan from a month ago in Oklahoma. They were saying, see there, the cancer. It's it's all in your lymph nodes, and there's that main tumor and all that. They said, here's the one we just did yesterday. All your lymph nodes are clear, and that tumor is 90% dead. I said, wow. I said, well, I know in, in Bartlesville they wanted to cut that tumor out. He said, that would have killed you. My doctor said, don't go around here. They'll kill you. <laughs> well, so I'm just walking a tightrope for bad news, you know. So I said, uh, they said, do you want to go home keep doing what you're doing, or do you want to uh, let us work on you? And I said, will you work on me? And he said, yeah, we will now. I said, God sent me down here to go to the best hospital I can go to. I want to get a clean bill of health, if it's possible, here. I'm minding God in the name of Jesus. So they went ahead and filled me through. They gave me enough chemo to kill me. It had killed a horse. Cause, and I, I keep saying, man, I said, this is killing me. And they said, well, we're giving you double doses, but you're a big old strong cowboy. I said, no, I'm a... I'm a tall bass player. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> when they got done with me, they said, all that cancer is gone now. And they said, uh, the only thing that's left is that tumor, and we got to burn that out with a cyber knife. Now, that's radiation. And they couldn't go straight in because it went right into my heart. So they had to go at an angle across here, and they built a body form for me to lay in. And they tattooed two little spots on me, and lined those up with laser lights so I'd be perfectly in the same spot every time I laid down in that thing. And he said, I just breathed slowly. And they'd hit that thing across. 35 days I did that, and my chest was just a raw, oozy, big old spot about the size of a baked potato where they'd burnt all that through there. But they burned that all out. And uh, when I got done, they said, you're completely cured of cancer. And they said, we're going to tell you something. You had a 2% chance to live when you showed me showed that first thing to us. And they said, you are a miracle. They said, you are a miracle. I'm thinking, a miracle? And they said, you should be dead. You are a miracle. And I went, God said, I'll do the rest. That's what it kept coming back. God said, I'll do the rest. So uh, I went down there in three, three months to get a checkup. And this nurse, she said, uh, your name sounds familiar. I said, well, I played bass guitar on television. I said, no, that's not it. You're the guy that's supposed to be dead. You're the miracle guy. You've got all the surgeons and people down there talking about Jesus. I said, I'm not a preacher. You know? <laughs> so I went down there at six months, and I got a PET scan. And this guy came out there, and he said, what's wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? He said, 
everybody has cancer cells in them. You don't have any. I said, well, they told me that I probably would never get cancer again. That's been 16 years ago, and I'm, uh, God did it. After I got out, I said, now, God, if you could ever use me uh, to tell anybody, I will. I'll always tell somebody. I had a lot of churches that asked me to come and speak, and I would talk to them. And then I'd get done. I'd go back to the office, and here comes some guy crying. He said, I've been cheating on my wife. Would you pray for me? I said, wait a minute now, Hoss. I'm just like you are. I'm not a preacher. And he'd say, well, what should I do? I said, well, I can tell you as just a guy, don't tell your wife that. You're going to break her heart. You just hang on to that yourself, that you cheated, and you got to carry that till you die. <laughs> and I said, you'll be better off than busting up your children or your wife. You just carry it and keep your mouth shut. But that was just what came to me. Shut up. Live with it. But I talked to several and people would just come up and ask you to touch, lay hands on them. I said, no, no, wait a minute, guys. I'm a human being. I'm not anything. I, I, Jesus is a guy you need to talk to, just like I did. And uh, Anyway, that's what happened to me. It's been 16 years, but it really opened my eyes. And I'll tell you what, to this day, I still love everybody. I don't have, I don't hate even the worst jerks in the world. I still have a little feeling for them. You know what I mean? I say, oh, they're okay. They just... I didn't walk in their shoes. I don't know what they went through to get like that. You know, maybe I had luck, you know. We're all that way, really, ain't we? You know, we live our lives, and we, we're all different because we all walk different trails, you know. I can't judge anybody for what they do. Some guy's a drug addict. I, I can't. I might have been if I'd been in his life. Yeah. might have been the same thing. <clears throat> now, I would like for all of our listeners to send me $10 for Love <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Uh, wow. Well, it's the truth, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> well, this fella has lived one of the most remarkable lives I've ever heard in my life, Jimbo, and it's still going. So I know, just amazing. And we we're just... not taking that story out. I want everybody to hear it. Okay, right. well, whatever. We're not going to take that story out. We want everybody to hear it because it was a, quite the remarkable story, Rodney. He, uh, Family came here on a covered wagon. They were all musicians. You bet. Hung out with all the outlaws. The best of the worst outlaws there were. <laughs> all the best. Bob Wills hung out in their yeah. house. Can you believe this? I don't know. It's amazing. You know, 1950s music, then the late 50s when he got his first big break. Then he went on to country. He's rock and roll. Went on to country, to rockabilly, to back to old country again. I know. He just like I said, I called him icon there at the first of the podcast, and that's what he is. I mean, you know, sixty years of it plus. God kept him alive because he kept him entertained all day Probably. long, every maybe, day. Maybe, but so. we really appreciate him coming in and sharing all that with us. And and I wish you'd work on that book. Yeah, I want you to too. Uh, if I could write, I can barely spell anything though. Cody Jimbo. can sell them right here in the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum, well, Oklahoma. If you find a a person that's a writer, somebody. We got a book writer going to be on in here in the morning. There you go. We'll talk to him. So we got this guy that we need to write a book about him or something. Because I, I don't know any first thing about it. All right. If there's any good book writers out there, get a hold of Rodney. He's <laughs> an easy fellow to get a hold of. We got him all the way up here to Pahuska, So, 
Well, Rodney, do you have anything else you want to say to anybody out there today? No, I just want to say it. it's a nice trip over here. That's how they're even fixing the highway more. I don't know what they're doing now. Hey, Pahuska is the place to be, man. Well, I'm telling you, this is really looking nice over this. And way, all great roads lead right yeah, here. Yeah, that's great. You need to get over here and visit us more often. You bet. You bet. Well, let's let's go back and take a look at Whiting Hall. Is it still standing? Uh, it's right over there. I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's isn't still it? there. Yeah, it's still there. It's that still stairway there. would hold our big bodies. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, everybody. This has been another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast. And we had the great Rodney Lay on here today. And it was uh, it was just a great, great day, Jimbo. And it's going to be go, go down in the history books on storytelling. Uh, I'd say so. Number one. Number one storyteller in the nation right here. <laughs> former movie star, former rock and roll star. And uh, two music hall of fames, two music hall of fames, hung out with all the coolest people you ever heard of in life. Rode in a, that one piece of time Cadillac with John, Johnny Cash through Nashville. And how, who could beat that? I can't even uh, can't even start to think how that could be beat. So. You know, he was a real nice guy. Like at his house, he would say grace if you had a cup of tea, glass of tea. He said grace at breakfast. He was really the real deal, you know. Yeah. And he and I wrote some songs together. They weren't hits, but he would uh, he would be sitting on the easy chairs, right? And he's I can't sing like this. And he'd go over to the fireplace and stand up on that lower level of the fireplace, like at this little stage. He's now I can sing up here. So that's where he'd go, you know. And we wrote two songs in three days. And he gave me the tape. It's a little one of those little bitty cassette tape players. And he said. You and I need to get in the studio sometime and do a demo on these so we can pitch them to people. I said, he said, you watch it because I'll lose it. I brought it home, put it in my desk drawer in my office. Our house flooded, and I lost everything. And I didn't think about it until months after. They came and took all that stuff out of the house and hauled it off, and that tape with Johnny Cash is in it. So I oh, lost no. It. Hey, Ted Lick, those things happen. You've had the best luck I ever heard of and some of the worst luck <laughs> I ever heard of. Luck. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> and we sure appreciate you coming on. And uh, we're going to let everybody know about you. Well, Cody, I thank you very much. And uh, Jim, you, you guys are real nice guys. Good to talk to. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we're just glad to help keep your memory alive. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, this is going to be one of everybody's favorite podcasts from here be. on. Got to be. Well, thank you, Rodney. Thank you. We'll see you next time, man. Bye-bye.